Well, it's said that there are three simple rules in life, right? Follow these rules, all will go well. Rule one, if you do not go after what you want, you'll never have it. Rule two, if you do not ask, the answer will always be no. And rule three, if you do not step forward, you'll always be in the same place. Now, nobody knows exactly where those three rules came from, but they, they are part of the sort of the American psyche, right? Each sharing this common emphasis on initiative, this emphasis on action. You know the saying, don't wait for life to happen, make it happen. Just do it. You know, that slogan for Nike that may have propelled their sales tenfold. You know, when it came out in 1988, I think up until 98, just Nike took off under that slogan, but only because we as Americans already deeply value that instinct to just go out there and do it, right? Dream big, take risks, don't sit around, right? Take life by the horns, don't just stand there, go do something. That's what we say. That's what we value as a nation. Friends, that is the American way. Is it always the Christian way? Like that's the question we have to ask ourselves this morning. Is that emphasis on action and initiative and all the rest, is it always the Christian way? Is there ever a place for inaction, for inactivity? for simply waiting? Well, friends, that's the question that brings us this morning back to our study in 1 Samuel. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Samuel. And listen, if you happen to be sitting here and you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're watching online and you're new to a Bible, never be embarrassed. If you're not sure where a book is, just go to the table of contents. Your Bible will have one. And look right there. One of the things you'll know, 1 Samuel, it's in the Old Testament. The first five books, the books of the law, they're listed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the next books from Joshua to Esther, those are all the historical books. And that's where 1 Samuel is, about a third of the way through, maybe around page 250 or so in your Bible. That's where you'll find it. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 26 through 27 this morning. So both those chapters. And just in case your memory's a bit fuzzy, right, there's a lot going on in the world right now. We've been out of 1 Samuel for a few weeks. 1 Samuel records really the story of how Israel transforms from this sleepy tribal nation into a people with this formidable monarchy under first, under King Saul. And Saul is the first king. And Saul, as we've seen, Saul looks the part, but tragically what we've seen is Saul can't play the part as king, which is why the Lord raises up a young shepherd boy named David from Bethlehem. Remember, David is the one who drops the mighty Goliath. He gets to marry the king's daughter. He gets to lead the king's armies. The only problem, of course, is Saul becomes jealous of David, jealous of all his success and warped by jealousy and envy. Saul does, sadly, what any paranoid king does. He tries to take out the young upstart. And so for the last eight chapters of 1 Samuel, David has been on the run from King Saul. He's been hiding in the wilderness. He's been seeking cover in caves. And David in one of those caves was handed the golden opportunity to take Saul out. And yet 
He refused to take the kingdom by force. We saw that in chapter 24. And then in chapter 25, uh, David fled south for safety. And there he had that run-in with Nabal in, in chapter 25. And it was only because of the last-minute exploits of Nabal's wife, Abigail, that David was kept from vengeance, kept, the Bible says, from working salvation with his own hands. You see, like Israel and like David's greater son, Jesus, David in these chapters is in the midst of his own wilderness temptations, right? The temptation there in the cave in 24, the temptation with Nabal in 25. And here we come in chapter 26 to David's sort of third wilderness temptation. And that's followed in chapter 27 by a period of exile. And I think if if chapter 26 presents David, perhaps at some of his best, I think in chapter 27, we see David, some of his worst, plotting and scheming for his own deliverance. So chapter 26, David's waiting and resting in God's deliverance, and 27 is scheming for his own. And I think we can sum up the main point of these two chapters just like this. I think it's the main point of the two chapters. Wait upon the Lord's deliverance as you trust in his providence. So main point, wait upon the Lord's deliverance as you trust in his providence. So we're first going to look at chapter 26, and there we're going to see the triumph of waiting on deliverance. Then we're going to turn to chapter 27 and see the tragedy of working for deliverance. So that's going to serve as our basic two points, those two chapters right there. Chapter 26 will be the triumph of waiting on deliverance, and then chapter 27, the tragedy of working for deliverance. And hopefully that will become clear as we move through the chapters. So first point, the triumph of waiting on deliverance. The triumph of waiting on deliverance. So look down with me, chapter 26, verse 1, we pick it up. 26, verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of, of Hekilah, which is east, is on the east of the Jeshimon? So we'll, just, we'll stop right there, just, just verse 1. If this sounds at all familiar, it is deja vu all over again. If you remember chapter 23, this is, it's happening again, the Ziphites again are betraying David. David, again, with few places to hide, that's where he finds himself among them. Again, the Ziphites rat on David. They betray him to Saul, again, just like they did in chapter 23. And yet, following the cave incident, one of the things that Saul did was Saul had exonerated David after that moment. He wept As David held forth, remember that torn piece of the robe from the cave? Saul wept and said, you are more righteous than I am. And so this time in chapter 26, when the Ziphites come to him again with this actionable intelligence on David, we might expect Saul to say nothing, right? If he's truly repentant, we might expect Saul to say to the Ziphites, hey guys, listen, I buried that grudge with David. Right, that's, that's past, that's gone. David's done nothing wrong. His whereabouts, they don't mean anything to me. But instead, we read in verse two, we read that so Saul arose and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David. Friends, it seems nothing has changed. 
so much for all of Saul's repenting in chapter 24. And David seems to realize this. He's recognizing if Saul's coming again, nothing has changed in Saul's own heart. So David goes a bit on the offensive. He sends out spies to see where Saul's men are in verses 4 and 5. And then in a move that appears just either exceedingly reckless, right? He, he recruits one man and he says, listen, let's go down into the camp of Saul. Yeah, there are 3,000 men. They're all in a circle. Saul's in the middle. But yeah, let's go down and let's go invade that camp. And amazingly, one guy actually volunteers, Abishai, and he decides to go. And picking up in verse 7, this is what we read. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear There's his spear again, oh my. His spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hands this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Okay, what's happened again? David presented with another golden opportunity. Saul alongside his infamous spear. Abishai sees it. Notice Abishai doesn't say, David, you take this one. Maybe Abishai remembers David's reluctance back in the cave. And Abishai says, no, 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 listen, just one stroke. Let me take his spear. I'll pin him. I will end this thing for good. And what poetic justice. What fitting irony it would be if Saul would be pinned by the very spear that was meant to pin David. Multiple times, Saul has sought to pin David. So it would be such irony for Saul's own spear to appear to pin him. You know, much like the, the, the wicked Naaman, if you remember the story of Esther, like wicked Naaman, who's hung on the own, his own gallows, those gallows he built to hang Mordecai, he's hung on them himself. It's the same idea right here. And friends, Abishai, in these verses, he just represents, I think, the natural impulse in us all, right? To take matters into our own hands, to strike at our enemies whenever we're given the chance, to combat every insult with another insult, right? To return evil with evil. But notice, David won't have it. David won't have it. Look at verse 9. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head, and the jar of water, and let us go. Friends, Saul may be unchanged by these wilderness years, but David has been changed. We see a different David here in these verses than the David we saw in the cave. There's there's a kind of faith-informed restraint to David, a kind of faith-informed restraint to his response. Notice five times how David highlights the Lord. He has learned to set the Lord ever before him. 
He won't make that same mistake he made in the cave. He won't have another near miss with Nabal. Those two tests in the wilderness, they taught him something. David has learned to wait upon the Lord's deliverance as he trusts in his providence. He's learned to wait upon God while trusting in God. He's reasoned, listen, if God could handle that fool Nabal without me, David, ever having to lift a finger, well, certainly God can handle this situation with Saul. David knows he doesn't need to take matters into his own hands because they're so obviously in the Lord's capable hands. David has learned not to resist God's providence. He's learned to rest in that providence. David has learned simply to wait, to wait on God's timing rather than force his own. My Christian friend, I wonder if that can describe you. Does that describe you, that ability to wait on God's timing, not to force it, not to press it? Friend, where might you be seeking to to fast forward God's clock when he simply wants you to rest in him, to call upon him, to wait upon him? Friends, none of us like waiting, right? This COVID season has revealed how impatient we are. We hate waiting. We want this virus to pass. I remember growing up, you know, first jobs out in California. I don't remember how many hours I spent on California freeways waiting. I have learned to loathe waiting. I, the TSA lines up there at the airport, at, at uh, Northwest Arkansas Airport, they're small, but I don't care. I still paid for TSA pre-check. I don't want to wait in line. We hate waiting. We want, what do we want? Instant gratification. We want all of our problems solved, and we want them solved quickly. We want life's knots, right? We want all those things untangled and fast. We want answers and what we want them now. And yet so often, what does God do? He calls us to wait and to watch, sometimes even to weep and to wait and to watch and to wait some more the way Abraham had to wait with his barren wife, Sarah, the way Jacob had to wait for Rachel, the way Joseph had to wait for years in prison, the way Israel had to wait in Egypt for her deliverance, the way Simeon and Anna waited in the temple for years to see the redemption of Jerusalem, Luke 2, the way creation, Romans 8, waits to be released from its own bondage, the way we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our own bodies. If you want a a fun Bible study, just go look at all the New Testament passages that talk about waiting. There's a theology of waiting in the scriptures because over and over again, God's saints are called to wait. It's the eager child that is waiting for adulthood. It's the desperate mom and dad praying over their daughter or son, their wayward child, and they're left waiting, praying and waiting. It's the furloughed husband applying job for job after job and then waiting. It's the grieving widow waiting to be comforted. 
It's the one riddled with excruciating cancer just waiting to be taken home. Friends, waiting is the posture of a Christian. And Christians of all people, we must know that. As hard as it is, that is the posture that God calls us to. You know, the Puritans knew this. They had a, developed a whole doctrine of waiting. They, they called it God's school of waiting. For they understood what Isaiah so clearly taught, right? But they who wait on the Lord, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. And yet, friends, it's remarkable that something so simple as waiting can be so hard, that it can be so difficult for us. Perhaps because waiting brings us face to face with our own sort of creatureliness. It exposes our own limits. It requires us to lean into God, which isn't, friends, natural for any one of us, right? We want to be in control, but waiting reminds us that we're not, in fact, in control. Waiting reminds us that God is the one in control, that that he alone can accomplish what we can't accomplish. Waiting is deeply humbling, friends, and none of us like to be humbled. My Christian friend, you will never understand the Christian life until you understand the spiritual discipline of waiting. There are some lessons in life that that school, to enroll in that school of waiting, some lessons only that school can teach. David has learned to wait, to wait upon the Lord's deliverance as he trusts in his providence. Friends, have you learned that lesson? Have you learned that lesson? Friends, how will you behave as you wait? You know, though David didn't know how providence would work, David did know what obedience required. He knew clearly what obedience required. He knew that he could not lift a finger against Saul, though he had no clue how this back and forth with Saul, he didn't know how that was going to play itself out, but he knew that he couldn't end it with violence. He wasn't permitted to do that. God's word didn't permit him to do that. And so he reasons, right? He reasons, perhaps the Lord will strike him, just as the Lord struck Nabal in the previous chapter, 2538. Or David reasons, maybe he'll just die in battle. You know, whether it's by supernatural means or whether it's by, you know, more natural means, either way, David knows the Lord is sovereign. The Lord can deal with this. God is big and God can take care of this. You know, David epitomized the words of, of missionary Corey Ten Boom. She said, we ought never to be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And friends, that's what David was living out right there. Friends, God's ways may confound us, but that doesn't mean obedience isn't clear to us. We may feel like we're in a dead-end marriage. We simply want out We're tired of waiting, so we want to check out of the marriage, maybe check in with another. But friends, God's word doesn't permit us to do that. Maybe there's a situation at work. You're tired of waiting for a promotion, tired of waiting and not being recognized, and you see an opportunity. 
yeah, cut a few corners, maybe do a few shady things, but listen, no one else is recognizing it. You've been waiting long enough. You're going to take matters into your own hands, but friends, obedience doesn't permit it. Whatever it might be, we don't know how our situation may end, but we do know how we're to behave. David refused to fast forward God's judgment. He refused to take matters into his own hands. Rather, in those words of 1 Peter that Ken read for us just a few minutes ago, David leaves it all to God. He entrusts his life to that one who he knows will judge justly. He gives his life to that God. Friends, David won't take Saul's life. But he does take something, doesn't he? He grabs that spear. He grabs that jug of water. Symbolically right there, what's just happened is that David, David has disarmed Saul and he has divested him of his power. He strips Saul both of what protects him with that spear and what sustains him with that water jug. It seems right there, there is nothing that can stop David from taking the throne. And and we're led into a little clue that it's all made possible because they have fallen under a deep sleep, verse 12, that the Lord has brought. And so in verses 13 to 16, David's going to call out some of David's men like Abner. There's going to be some banter back and forth between them. And then Saul finally wakes up in verse 17 and he recognizes David's voice. And we pick up. Verse 18, David says, Why does my Lord, referring to Saul, pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So what David's saying, he's saying, listen, he's saying, Saul, If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then somewhere I'm at fault, so let me go provide an offering. But David David suspects, he well knows that's not the issue. So he says, but listen, if, if someone else has provoked you, if someone else has stirred you up, any of these men, and what he doesn't say, if perhaps your own heart, the envy and jealousy of your own heart, perhaps if that's provoked you, then he says, may they be cursed. May they be cursed. For this constant pursuit of David, David is saying, listen, you're driving me out of Israel, outside of Israel's borders. And to be exiled from Israel, according to David, that is akin to being exiled from God himself. That's his great consternation in these verses. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a kind of theology of geography. Israel was the Lord's heritage. And the promised land was where God uniquely dwelt among his people. So to run, to be run out of Israel, as David is being run out of Israel, is to be denied the ark. It's to be denied the tabernacle, all the festivities, all the atoning sacrifices, all that would be denied. Now David knew, he knew God was omnipotent. He knew he could pray to God from any place across the globe. 
He knew God wasn't limited in that sense to the boundaries of Israel. But to be cut off from Israel was to be cut off from public worship. It was to be denied the very special grace of God's presence with his people. And the place where God chose to uniquely dwell with his people. And that thought horrified David. It's why he says in verse 20, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. So friends, notice this, particularly if you're a Christian here this morning, notice this. David was not content with merely his Bible, a cave, and a quiet time. That wasn't enough for David. He knew private worship alone wouldn't sustain him. He knew his soul depended upon the ordinances of public worship and all the special graces that came with that public worship. Friend, what about you? What about you? Especially if you're listening to this message here online, you don't have a church home. You know, maybe you attend church when you've got time, when it's convenient, right? When life and sports and other activities don't get in the way, maybe then you, you attend a, a, a gathering. You know, too often Christians can reason, well, hey, I got my Bible, I've got my prayer list, I've got access to some sermons on the internet, I've got a podcast or two, I'm going to be fine. But God has designed his people to be in spiritual community. He designed this corporate worship gathering, masks, social distancing, and all. Nonetheless, he designed it. The singing and the preaching. The ordinances of public worship, like baptism that we saw last week, like the Lord's Supper, to be a unique means of grace by which he intends to to confirm and to strengthen our own faith. These things aren't optional according to the scriptures. They're actually essential to our own spiritual lives. It's why one who claims to be a Christian ought to be formally united to Christ's body, which the New Testament says is the local church. To have no church home, right? To have no pastors who know you. To have no church body that knows you and can affirm you and is committed to you and consequently you committed to them to know them and to care for them. To have no Lord's Supper that binds you to a specific set of believers and them to you. Friends, if that doesn't describe you, or if that, if that and Frank, does describe you, that kind of distance, that kind of separation, that lack of commitment, the Bible actually says it doesn't understand your claim to be a Christian. You're living in a dangerous place, a place David was horrified to live in. Friends, David himself would grieve for you to be exiled from public worship and from God's community, that horrifies David. It drives him to despair. And yet how often do we voluntarily do this to ourselves when we remove ourselves from the means of grace that God intends for us in the gathered assembly? You know, when we treat church like like an afterthought or some kind of optional add-on to the Christian life, and then we wonder why our faith is so anemic or why our public witness is so pathetic, and we don't realize we've done it to ourselves. To be cut off from God's people and to cut off from public worship, for David, that was the severest grief. Friends, do you grieve like that? 
you grieve for brothers and sisters in Christ who are separated like that? You know, upon hearing David's plea, recognizing that David has once again spared his life, and once again David has acted more righteously than Saul, we see Saul does express remorse. Verse 21, Saul says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Friends, I wonder what you make of that confession of Saul's. What do you make of that confession? It all sounds good, doesn't it? Only problem is we've been down this road before too, haven't we? Back in chapter 24, Saul gave a similar Oscar-winning performance, right? Replete with all the crocodile tears and all the gesticulations of remorse and sadness. And yet here we find ourselves again. And I want to say this to all, but maybe especially to the youth in the room or to the youth that are watching, genuine repentance is about more than words. It's about more than words. It's not even about saying the right words, though you may have learned the kind of words to use with your parents that get you off the hook, but that's not actually what genuine repentance is. It's not mustering up some tears to accompany those words as as Saul has. Genuine repentance in the Bible, well, that's evidenced in actual actions. It's evidenced in a response, in a turning from sin, away from sin, and turning to God, looking to God, because it recognizes that sin is primarily an offense against God. And this is what Saul has entirely missed. He's not beating his breast saying, oh my, look at me, a sinner. He's not grieving his actions against a holy God. He merely seems to be grieving the consequences of what's happened with his relationship with David. And David seems to know it. It's why as the chapter closes, David doesn't look to Saul for deliverance. Verse 24, may he, the Lord, deliver me from all tribulation. He's learned once again, David has, to wait upon the Lord's deliverance as he rests in his providence. And those closing words in chapter 26, those closing words are in fact the last words that David and Saul will ever speak to one another. It's the last time they will ever see one another. David will part, never to meet Saul again. And what's David's reward? What's his reward for waiting on the Lord Is it a palace? Is it a throne? Is it primetime network news coverage with Saul saying, listen, I've wronged David all along, a big public apology? Not at all. Not at all. David's reward was that he got to go back to the hills. He got to scurry off with his men, go back into hiding, and Saul got to go back to the the palace. And yet, as David left, he left with a clean conscience. And my Christian friend, there is nothing so valuable as a clean conscience. No pillow so soft, no reward so great as knowing we have honored the Lord and we're ready to bear the cost. And perhaps that's what makes chapter 27 so confusing. You know, David in chapter 26 has entrusted his future to the Lord. 
You know those wilderness temptations in chapter 24, 5, and 6? Yeah, David stumbled some along the way, but he hasn't fallen. He seems to have learned the lesson. And yet we come to chapter 27, and notice what happens. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And that's what David does. David, the 600 men, their families, and they, they leave. They leave Israel. In verse 5, they approach King Achish. Notice what they say in chapter 27, verse 5. David says, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. And Achish gives him Ziklag. And from there, we read that David and his men, chapter 27, verse 8, Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as shore, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the, I can never pronounce this one, Jeremelites, we'll just go with that, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. And such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Well, friends, what do we do with those verses? The altar boy, like to the butcher boy. I mean, honestly, how do we make sense of stuff like this? Because chapter 7 raises, I think, a host of hard questions. And part of the struggle is we're given brute facts like this. And yet, we're not offered a lot in the way of moral judgments. These verses make no obvious comments on David's actions. All we're left is to infer from what is said and what is not said. And friends, not all will agree. Commentators are split somewhat on how to read chapter 27. And yet, and though I came, I confess, I came to this reading a bit reluctantly, I think if chapter 26 represents David perhaps at his best, I do think chapter 27 shows David at some of his worst. 26, the triumph of waiting on deliverance. I think in 27 we see the tragedy of working for deliverance. This really brings us to our second point here in chapter 27, the tragedy of working for deliverance. I think what's especially notable in this chapter is that we don't read at all of what Yahweh is doing. We're not even given Yahweh's point of view. It's not even clear if Yahweh is present. Literally speaking, he isn't present. Chapter 27 makes, I mean literarily speaking, not literally, he's always present. But in the story, literarily, He's not present. Chapter 27 makes zero reference to the Lord. Zero reference to him. 
chapter 26, 16 references. David's speech in 9 to 11, five references. Here we're going to have nearly a year, and a, half, a year and a half of his life and no reference whatsoever. None from David's mouth. Zip, zero, nada, none. In fact, it's the first chapter in the entire book that doesn't mention the Lord. The only other chapter that fails to mention the Lord is chapter 31, which is Saul's death. And perhaps that comes as no surprise. And I don't think that's by accident. I think the narrative is subtly telling us something. I think it's offering us a warning, right? Despite all the promises and the deliverances and the success of David, I think in 27, he stumbles because he's forgotten God. He's forgotten God. No longer waiting on deliverance. In chapter 27, we see David take deliverance into his own hands. He's going to work for it in chapter 27. And we can appreciate why. We can be somewhat sympathetic with David, right? Betrayed by his own. What have we seen but one harrowing escape after another? we got to ask, how long can this go on? David has to be asking himself that question. Nine chapters of adrenaline pumping, like high blood pressure kind of action. Makes a great Hollywood movie. It makes a terrible life. Right? You don't want to have to live that life, David's life. No doubt it's taking considerable toll on David, body and soul. And at some point it seems David gave in to fear. Right? He's surrounded by exhausted mothers, by battle-weary fathers. He's looking into the eyes now of confused Hungry children, not understanding why they're always on the run. I mean, that would take its toll. David perhaps begins to wonder, will this nightmare of his ever end? And in 27.1, he says in his heart, one day I shall perish by the hand of Saul. Even though back in chapter 23.14, we were assured that though Saul sought him every day, What were we assured? That the Lord did not give David into his hand. We had that assurance. David has been given that assurance. Jonathan has given that assurance. Abigail has given that assurance. Saul himself has given that assurance and said the kingdom will be yours. But David has developed his doubts. Somewhere along the way, those doubts set in. And notice where it all started in the quiet recesses of his heart. It started when he began talking to himself, right, saying in his heart. Friends, the state of our hearts is shaped by what we say to our hearts. The state of our hearts is shaped by what we say to our hearts. So you may think of me as the preacher, Some of you even called me the preacher, which coming from California, somewhat from the north, I'm not used to that. But hey, I recognize it. I'm I'm up here. You're there. I get it. But more fundamentally, we're all preachers. We all preach to ourselves. We all talk to ourselves. Friends, what do you say? We will give a sermon to our souls every day. Friends, what is that sermon? What sermon are you preaching to yourself when I'm not here preaching to you? Is God anywhere in those sermons? Do you rehash his word 
or do you simply rehash your predicaments? And then does that lead you, perhaps like David here, to do something rash, something foolish? Never believe the lie that all the junk that you tell yourself won't make a difference in your life. That all the ways you allow your mind to wander, all the things you focus upon, all the quiet and dark things in your mind that you engage, Lord, don't believe the lie. Friends, don't believe the lie that those won't affect you. Lord, your, friends, your social media, your music, your streaming services, your internet, your amusement, it is having an effect on your soul and in the sermons you give to that soul. Friend, what effect is it having? Is it pushing you toward God or is it dulling your spiritual senses and drawing you away from God? David should have been preaching Psalm 42.5 to himself. He should have been preaching, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God. That's what he should have been preaching to himself, but he's not. It seems he lets the doubts and the fears drown out the promises of God's word, and David's fears have made him now dull to God drew him away from God, and he's convinced himself that deliverance is now spelled G-A-T-H. He's got to go to Gath if he's ever going to have deliverance. Friends, in times of fear, we often seek deliverance in all the wrong places and through all the wrong means. And I think David, sadly, is an example for us a good warning for us. Friends, that might be you today. In your fear, have you sought refuge and rest in something or someone other than God? How do you expect that's going to turn out? Isaiah 40, 31 reminds us that they who wait for the Lord, they who wait shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. But David's grown tired of waiting. And so he has, in effect, exiled himself. He has removed himself from the land of promise. And you know what? In the eyes of the world, this move by David, it makes perfect sense. But Proverbs fourteen twelve reminds us, there is a way that seems right to a man. But it doesn't always end well, does it? David didn't wait upon God's deliverance, and here he's working for his own. And it even appears somewhat successful, right? He's escaped Saul's spear, no more Saul. He's been granted his own city by King Achish. His men perhaps have had their first restful sleep in months, if not years. He's been victorious in battle. He's become quite wealthy, and he has been successful in duping Achish, so Achish is saying, where are you fighting? And he says, he says I'm actually fighting the Israelites and in, verse, uh, in verse 8. Actually, sorry. He says in verse 10, all those places, that would be Israel and Israel's neighbors. That's what he says he's doing. He says he's fighting them, but in reality, he's not fighting them. He's fighting all the people up above in, in verse 8. 
But friends, we're reminded that whatever does not proceed from faith is what? It's sin, Romans 14, 23. Without faith, Hebrews eleven six. it is impossible to please God. The will of God is not finally our success. It's not our comfort. The will of God is not even our safety. It is, though, our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, I think it is, 4, 3. Someone can look that up later. 4-3, I believe. And maybe, friends, Dave got tired of that lesson. You know, I've had enough of the sanctification. I just love some peace and quiet and rest. It's very easy to understand why. Friends, honestly, would we have done any different? When we were next to Abishai, would we not have turned a blind eye and just said, hey, listen, this Saul, I've had enough of Saul. Just do what you will. Do we think we would have not fled Israel? Likely, we would have done the same. And yet Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 calls us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Proverbs doesn't say don't use your understanding. That's a great thing to do. Use your understanding. Proverbs says don't lean on it. Don't rest there finally. Rest in the Lord. And what would God's word have us do? The question to ask. And that's the question I think David has grown weary of asking. And so he stopped waiting on God and he stopped working himself. And friends, that is the natural impulse of every one of us. You know, if you've come and you're thinking about Christianity, trying to understand the claims of Christianity, the impulse in all of us when it comes to our relationship to God is what? It's to work for it. It's to say, okay, God, I sense maybe there's something off here. You know, I know I do some things I shouldn't do, and I, you're a good guy, and so I should probably make things right by doing something. That's the impulse all of us have, to work for it. And that is pretty much the, the message of every religion, save Christianity. Christianity is the exception. Christianity says, actually, that's a fool's errand. There is no way that you, by your work, can amend for all your wrongs. It simply isn't possible. Which is why the glorious message of Christianity, it's why God sent Jesus into the world. To live the life that you and I have not lived, will not live. Even in our best moments, we really don't think we can ever live it. And then he died the death that we deserve. He died the sinner's death upon a cross, bearing our guilt and our shame and all of the weight of our sin. And yet God raised him from the grave as proof that Jesus' death atoned for sin, that it accomplished forgiveness and reconciliation. And so Jesus rose and all of those who put their faith in this Jesus, the one who has lived for us and died for us, We can be forgiven of our sin, not because we've worked for it, but because he worked for it and because he did it. And we can rest in him and know salvation in him. That's the good news of the gospel. Friend, if you're listening to this, if you're here, don't leave this, well, leave the building for social distancing purposes, but don't leave the campus without having a conversation about someone, what it means to be a Christian, about the message of Christianity. I'd love to chat with you. Just call the office. So I want to talk to Brad about Christianity. Love to do that with you. But friends, there are a whole host of questions that arise as we think of David's own raiding activity, right? His wholesale destruction of entire communities, 
And some will try to explain it and say, hey, you know what? Back in 1 Samuel 15, God called Saul to completely destroy all of the remaining enemies within the promised land. What didn't happen in Joshua, God called Saul to do that holy war to destroy it all. David is just finishing what Saul had left undone. And that would be a convenient explanation. It's one, it, one level that makes some sense. I think the challenge with that reading is that's not what David says. That's not why he says he did it. David didn't say he did this in obedience to God. In fact, it, it certainly looks like David is trying to cover all of this up. He's destroying communities and then lying through his teeth about it to Achish with a kind of dead men tell no tales mentality, right? I'll leave no one alive so that no one can rat on me and really say what I'm doing. He doesn't want what he's done to be made known. And the destruction that God calls Saul to in 1 Samuel 15 is a wholesale destruction, livestock and everything. That's not what David's doing. David's taking all the booty for himself. I don't think there's any, in, anything in here that obviously sanctions what David does. And ironically, it was David who wrote himself in Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. When did he pen those lyrics to Psalm 34? After the first instance in Gath. Here he is, the second time in Gath, and he doesn't seem to be singing his own tune. At the start of chapter 28, you know, Achish is going to call David's bluff. And then we're really going to see at the beginning of 28 what it's like to be caught between a rock and a hard place. Right? The proverbial pickle, David's about to find himself in it. And we're reminded of that basic lesson of what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. But friends, here's where we also have to recognize the Bible is honest with us. The Bible's not whitewashing its characters. It's not pouring bleach all over them that we would think wonderfully of them. You know, if you come to the Bible looking for overly romanticized and sentimental characters, you've obviously come to the wrong book. It's a book about real people with real struggles, and it's painfully and brutally honest by all of their very real faults, which is hard because up to this point, David... David's pretty much won our hearts. His victory over Goliath, his unjust treatment by this crazed tyrant king, the knights in the wilderness, right? He's the hero, the underdog. He's the good guy. We're pulling for David. We're rooting for David. So much so that we get here and we often feel betrayed by David. But friends, should we be surprised? Should we be surprised? Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. After all, aren't the best of men men at best? God doesn't have perfect, pure, raw material to work with. Every one of us, at the core, we are impure. And so if you strip away enough, and if you make the circumstances hard enough, all the impurities of our heart, of course, they will begin just to pour out. And we will be exposed for who we truly are. And friends, it's never pretty. It's not pretty in chapter 27, which is exactly why we don't worship others. We don't worship politicians 
We don't worship pastors. We don't worship spouses or friends or famous figures. Every one of them will disappoint you long enough. You're with them long enough. They will fail you. Friends, there's only one who never will. There's one who never will. One who endured every wilderness temptation, like David three, and yet never stumbled and never fell. There is only one who perfectly obeyed, who perfectly loved, perfectly trusted, and perfectly suffered for us. And it's why we look to him, right? We look to Christ. We run to him. We trust in him. And we can wait upon him. Because all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. Friends, these two chapters are honest about life, about the highs and about the lows, and about what it looks like to faithfully wait for God's deliverance or to sinfully work for our own. Friends, the question is, who will you trust as your deliverer? Who will you trust as your defender? And will you wait for him? Will you wait for him? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for your word. Lord, we don't delight in the sins and in the faults of others. And yet, we're grateful for the reminder that at the end of the day, though David was the Lord's anointed, he's like us. And if David can be saved, if David can be a man after your own heart, in Christ, so too can we. You can do that same work in us. And God, we pray that you would, that we would wait upon you. In Christ's name, amen.